Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, a quick trigger warning. We do talk about sexual abuse and assault in this episode. So if you're not feeling up to that, you're not in the right mind space, feel free to skip this episode. So today I am here with Kelly Wallace. She is an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Kelly testified against her paternal grandfather at eight years old back in the days before closed captioning TV in 1985. She is at work, she's at work on a memoir about her experience and has published in the manifestation and on loan from Cosmos, a frequent podcast guest. She enjoys sharing her story of recovery from sexual trauma, as well as struggles with alcoholism and eating disorder and financial chaos across a wide variety of platforms. She hosts voices of survivors, a monthly zoom reading series with Addy, what's Addy's last name? I should have asked that. What? Ty. Ty. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was like, mm, this could go many ways. Yeah. <laughs> Addy <laughs> is a Houston based writer that highlights the voices of survivors of sexual trauma from a variety of backgrounds. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You are welcome. I'm so glad I can be here to share my story. I really appreciate it. Um, I too uh, am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. So I can, I mean, I can relate. It's obviously everybody's story is different, right. but um, it was, but mine was through a family member as well, my uncle. So Yikes. I, yeah, I'm like, you know, people don't realize is it often happens to people by people, you know, like there, you know, it's always like when you're growing up stranger danger, stranger danger, but it's often not strangers. No, it's usually a family member or a coach or someone that's a family friend. That's close. Yeah. yeah. It's not strangers. Uh, so obviously we don't want to talk about the gory details of what happened to you. Of course. Um, but like, when did you realize, like, I need to say something like you're eight years old. I mean, I, my sister came forward around eight years old too. Oh. Um, and it, yeah. So like, um, my mom got a call and she was like really frightened and she gets off the phone and she goes, I have to ask you both something. Did your uncle do anything to you? And I had actually blocked it out. I don't remember anything happening. It wasn't until I was uh, much older that it came back to me. And I was like, holy crap. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which is so, so common. So common. yeah, but my sister at first, she was like, no. And then you could tell in her voice that something had happened. Yeah. And then she told us all about it. And my cousins, like there was at least 30 kids that like said it happened to them. Yeah. Cause he Whoa. was like a, a youth pastor and he was like, you know, part of our church, but also then part of like church camps, he had access to a lot of kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so like, you know, and back, back then this was like in the nineties, um, you know, people, they wanted proof 
before they do anything, right? The police, like nowadays, I feel like they take it a little more seriously. They a wanted proof, bit. a little bit, not a lot of it, but they wanted proof, right? They wanted yeah. like this actually happened. It, it's, it's a mess. Anyways, when did you, that was like the time that we as a family realized something was going on. When did, when were you like, I got to say something? Well, um, a little context first. Um, I saw a, a child sexual abuse awareness video when in my second grade classroom. And, um, I realized after watching that video that what was happening between my grandfather and I was not normal. Mm -hmm. And, um, so my parents were in the middle of a nasty, nasty divorce and, um, kind of right after everything, all the dust settled. Um, my dad was living with my grandparents, um, in at that time. And I was, going to my grandfather or my grandparents' house on, um, visits with my dad, like over the holidays and things like that. And so, um, I just, you know, I just thought like, this is what I just thought this was completely normal because it was, it was actually 1984 when I told my mom, um, and she believed me right away. And she just knew that something was off about me. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had lots of anxiety. I was just kind of a very, very, very quiet, like like abnormally quiet child. And so that was kind of like when I told her what was happening, she realized that um, this was why I was acting like, you know, very anxious child. And um, so it explained a lot of things. And so um, thankfully my mom was, um, able to spring into action. And my mom is a, just, she has that take charge personality. Let's, let's solve this. And so she called the police. Um, we, I think, I think there was a social worker that was assigned by the children's services division. Mm -hmm. Um, that person was notified. Um, police report was filed. I was um, plunged into, um, group therapy, individual therapy, um, with other little girls like myself who were also being, um, sexually assaulted by family members. And then my life just kind of changed. I was interviewed by detectives, um, recounting my story to just so many, many people, which is why, like, as an adult, I'm able to just speak very, very freely about it because I've been talking about it since I was eight years old. Right. So I, I can relate to thinking, um, certain things are normal that aren't. So like I grew up in a emotionally and psychologically abusive household. So I didn't realize until I was adults and I ended up in relationships like that. Right. Like most of my relationships were like that. So it wasn't until I met my spouse and like, we got married and he like would be, he would stop me and he'd be like, no, like, this is not appropriate. You can't talk to me like that. You can't act like that. And, um, even then I didn't realize that I had been abused since I was a child until I took a domestic violence training and they were talking about all these things. And I'm like, but I went through those things. 
Like I experienced those things where then I was like, oh, light bulb moment. I literally have been abused because you mean people think abuse, they think, you know, hitting. Um, But like, I literally had been emotionally abused since I was a child. So different contexts, but I can relate to like, if you don't know any different, you think it is normal because you don't know any different. Yeah. Or it's just not, I mean, I think, I think today parents are much more like aware. There's a lot more language around, um, you know, I I just think there's so much more, we just have more language for it now Mm -hmm. and talking to children about, um, child sexual abuse. Um, and you know, like, when, when I disclosed, it was called good touch, bad touch. I don't know if they use that language anymore. Um, but yeah, I just think that, you know, back in the, back in the eighties, I think there wasn't a lot of, we just didn't have a lot of research. There just wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of anything going on in that arena. And so, um, I read, actually read a study a couple of years ago. That's, I think it was not until the mid seventies that the first, um, investigation of child sexual abuse took place. And wow. so it's, a, it's, a, it's emerging, you know, and there's, there's, yeah, like I said, there's not a lot of, um, research into it, but I think, I think, I think we're in a better place, but still a long, long, long ways to go. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, people like yourself, so many people have pushed the mem- memories down and they come out they come out when they want to come out. Sometimes they just never come out. Right. Well, I mean, therapy for me did it. Yeah. I'm like, that's the place that you're supposed to heal. And, but also the place that things come up. Yeah. Lots of things come up. (laughs) I was actually reading, uh, I have a couple of memoirs by people with a dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. Yes. And uh, every single one, they were like abused as children. And um, this one, he didn't remember anything because the um, the altar, that's what they're called altars is the yes. other like identity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to get away from personality because it's not what people think. It's great. It's, it's some people should learn about it. Um, anyways, the altar had um, protected him from it and like pretty much like remembered everything yeah he didn't remember anything yes um so it was really it was really fascinating how our brain can protect us from things it doesn't always right like but sometimes it can like literally um dissociative identity disorder is is caused like by trauma and your brain trying to protect itself yeah exactly Exactly. It, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's really amazing what, what the brain can do. Um, I never experienced, um, the DID, but I do have a little dissociative stuff going on. And I think that's just, that's my body's way of protecting me. Yeah. Yeah. We can, um, people don't may listening may not realize you can dissociate without actually having dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. Um, there's like, like, like most, um, disorders on the mental health spectrum is like, there is a spectrum (laughs) of what happens, right? Like people can, I have bipolar disorder. People can have depression without having the mania, which means no bipolar disorder. 
Um, so like there's, there's all these different nuances that we deal with when it comes to mental health, but yeah, disassociating, uh, my, my therapist made me fill out a form. Like, do you do this? Do you do that? Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) sometimes I do. (laughs) Yeah. I dissociate sometimes if I'm just walking with someone like just on a, on a casual walk, I'll literally feel my body stop and I'll have to like tell myself, just keep going. Don't you don't have to stop. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so weird. It's, it's, it's strange. So I did not personally experience having to, um, you know, go up in front of like a jury or in front of anybody, because like, I didn't remember anything. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if my sister did or not. It was a mess. Uh, it was definitely, it was a, it was a hot mess of mm-hmm. a situation. Um, to be honest, when it, there's so much, and this is not about me, <laughs> we're not going to get into it because it's a yeah, long yeah. story, but, um, what was that like for you as a child? Do you remember? Like, that's yeah, scary. I have, um, I have a lot of, um, recall, um, because the way that, um, trauma impacts your brain, it allowed me to really remember, um, a lot of, um, the people that were in, um, the, in the rows in the courtroom. Um, so my, my grandparents, um, lived in a very small community and, um, they were in a family business together. My grandfather had, I think he had like seven sisters, a brother. And then my dad has, um, multiple, multiple family members. And so, um, the courtroom was packed with all of those relatives. Um, I remember, um, seeing the bailiff and he had a gun and I thought, if my grandfather is, um, convicted, that's the man that will take him away. And, um, so I, you know, I sat on this very hard chair. It had a green, um, little pad on it. That was like pleather. I remember those details and, um, the actual testimony. Um, I don't, um, like I, I remember there was a a judge that was, um, the judge that was presiding was, um, who's this very older kind of grandfatherly like, um, man. And he kept saying, I was nodding my head a lot. If the judge asked me questions and, um, he was like, no, you have to say yes or no. And so he kind of put the fear of God, (laughs) um, you know, and, you know, the actual questions that were asked, I have the, the testimony, I have the transcripts from that, from that trial. And, um, the questions, um, were just, you know, so invasive, you know, I recently, I read through it recently again. And, um, one of the questions that the defense attorney asked me was, um, do you, do you think this video that you watched caused you to basically make up the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, like I said, it was a different time. They, um, they thought my mom, they were convinced that my mom had coached me. And Mm. that was a big thing at that time, coaching kids. Um, they thought because of this contentious divorce that my mom was trying to get revenge on my dad. And so, I mean, so those, those, um, you know, I don't remember 
being asked that question about the video, but all of those little details um, are solidified in my mind, like a movie. I can watch that movie playing over and over in my head, um, walking past those relatives on the way to the, the witness stand. Yeah. Um, Please tell us he got convicted. He did. Oh, sorry. he did not. He did, <laughs> he not, did not. He did. Of course not. he didn't. Of course he didn't. Yeah. So, um, he, um, yeah, it was, it was very lovely. So, um, there were actual, there were actually, um, two other women. So my, my grandfather was, um, a chaperone for future farmers of America for H two women that were friends of my aunt came forward and said that he had, he had touched them in suggestive ways. Um, one said that he quote, looked at her the way that a man looks at a woman and she was 12 years old. And so, um, those women were not, um, they kind of backed down and nothing further was ever really done because that's not how the police investigated back then. Um, about 14 years ago, I had a cousin come forward and say that she was also molested by, um, this grandfather who has since passed away. He died a long, long time ago. Um, but we compared notes and it was almost very, very, very similar. So I know that there are others out there and, um, I know there are a lot of uh, others out there and because I have multiple female cousins, um, that are around my same age. So, um, he was not convicted. And then, um, he spent $30,000, which was an extraordinary amount of money back in 1985. Mm -hmm. And he was um, basically an alcoholic who was drinking the family farm into the ground. And um, they turned around and said that because of the cost of the trial, um, they had to declare bankruptcy. But in reality, my, my grandfather, who was um, farming with two other family members, there was a, there was a lot writing on, um, keeping this man from going to prison. And so people were doing whatever it took to keep the family business afloat. And I was the one that spoke up and, um, I was the bad one. So, um, yeah, so he was not convicted and, um, he lived another 10 years and, um, probably molested a lot of other kids in that time frame. Yeah. They don't stop. Like no, people, it's, it's a compulsion. It doesn't. Yeah. Unless you have treatment for it, which the treatment is the success rates are not super great. Um, so they just keep going. Yeah. Um, yeah. mine got, <laughs> what was it? Five years in County jail. Cause they didn't oh. want to send him to prison because they were afraid of what would happen to him if he got sent of course. to prison. Of course. Uh, he got off in a year and a half for good behavior. Oh my gosh. Yep. And he was supposed to be away from us. He lived right around the corner. Yep. With my grandmother, uh, my <gasps> uh, paternal grandmother. Yeah. Who helped. She helped uh, raise money for him. Uh, yeah. So to all of her grandchildren, mind you, he had molested pretty much all of her grandchildren were oh lying God. 
And the church backed him and said, he's a man of God. He would not do that. And they raised money for his lawyer. Of course. Yeah. So it was wild. And he would drive by our house sometimes and honk when he was (gasps) driving by. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It was uh, it was pretty uh, crazy. So, yeah, these people like. I mean, I again, I'm hoping nowadays that they're better at like actually convicting these people. But like, yeah, a, a year and a half, 20 kids. Now, 20 kids did not testify against him. Yeah, but still, that's a lot of kids. Um, I think only five ended up testifying. But you're talking about five kids, like five kids. Five. Wow. Like he. Yeah, it was awful. Anyways, crazy that these, these people don't, and I say people because women can do it too. They're just not, they don't, it doesn't happen as often with women or they just, they don't come, the people don't come forward. Right. It could yeah, easily, yeah. it could easily be just as prevalent with women as it is men. Yes. So I say people, but like, so often these people just get away with it and they keep going on to oh, do yeah. more. Oh yeah. And then they're the, the community leaders. They're the teachers, the they're in places where they have access to children. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they can pass a, a background check like that because it's so hard to catch them. And so he, hard to catch them. Yeah. So. I mean, and if they were never convicted, <laughs> then yeah, it yeah. doesn't even show up on their background check. Exactly. Exactly. So they're, they're, they're everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. And, um, it's, it is, it is pretty wild. And then we have to deal with the after effects trauma, right? Because, you know, like we all like people who have gone through trauma, we have, we usually develop very unhealthy coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So yeah. sh- share us a little bit about yours. <laughs> well, I've got a whole kit and caboodle. Um, so, um, I managed to, um, you know, skate through high school. I hung out with a bunch of goody two shoes and I got to college in upstate New York. Yeah. That happened to me too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, I landed in, I went to, I went to this college called Wells and it was co I mean, it was, um, it was a women's college at the time and it was in the middle of nowhere farm country. And, um, the only thing to do was drink or sex. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, we could, to, we could take the, there was a van that you could take. I didn't have a car. There's a van you could take and go to the, go down to Cornell and people did that quite often, but, um, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I would go to Ithaca occasionally, um, and, you know, go to the bars and stuff like that. But, um, but my, you know, and I come from, like, I, I told you the paternal grandfather, was an alcoholic have they're they're everywhere in my family. And right. so it was just a matter of time. And so I started drinking socially pretty much my freshman, sophomore years. And, but then my junior year and my senior year, it just really, really ramped up. And, um, I decided to start smoking because it just kind of seemed like a good idea, you know? So all of these, um, you know, I had a lot of therapy, but all of these, things were just kind of lurking. All these isms were just kind of lurking in the background, just waiting, um, for me. And, um, 
I put on a little bit of weight my junior year and um, tried to lose it and was really struggling with like, I was exercising a lot, but I was still eating like the normal amount. And then I was like, oh, if I just, you know, have a bagel for breakfast, a bowl of cereal for dinner, that'll, that'll, the weight will just come right off. So, um, um, yeah, I developed an eating disorder and was drinking quite a bit. And, um, thankfully I had a family member that, you know, after I graduated and came back to, to Portland, Oregon, where I live, um, she was like, you are, your life is kind of a hot mess. And I think you should stop drinking. And, um, so I had tried to get sober several times when I was in college and it just didn't, I wasn't ready. I was like under 21. I was like, I gotta at least have my 21st birthday so I can go out and right on. Um, and so when I was about 23, I got sober and started going to meetings just kind of on my own and developed a support system there was able to, um, quit drinking. So I've been sober for like 21 years, um, stopped smoking. Um, and you know, just through, just through, um, through therapy, I, I didn't have like a eating disorder, like program that I went to. I just started going to therapy and realized that, you know, um, I can be okay as a size eight. I don't have to be like a size four to be perfect. You know, I still struggle with, with those things on a daily basis, but, you know, I, you know, would rather look in the mirror now and see a healthy person versus a very unhealthy looking (laughs) Kelly at 24. So I think it is a society's pressure that women need to be like thin anyways, that like really puts the pressure on everyone to like, totally. There's so many women I know that have had an eating disorder because like, you feel like you have to be like really thin and, and you have to look a certain way. And I I feel like we're starting to turn, like, like make a a pivot on this because now you're seeing more body positivity and, and thicker women on magazines and like putting it all out there, which I'm like, Oh, thank God that like, finally we're seeing some women, I don't want to say normal size women because women are all shapes and sizes, right? Like right. there are people who are naturally very thin and very small. And then there are people who are naturally bigger and, and not as teeny tiny and, and that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. For we all like to be on this spectrum of, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl halftime show, but um, people were picking on or, or posting and picking on 50 Cent for like gaining weight. And I'm like, he's 45. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. He's not going <laughs> to look like he did when he's in his 20s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or I mean, I think I did watch the Super Bowl um, halftime show and I was like, wow, I'm really old now. But yeah, me um, too. That's how I felt. <laughs> I think everyone did. I think all the genera- Gen Xers. Um, but I mean, I think the fact that we have a TV show, um, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen the TV show Shrill. No. So, um, gosh, I, I forget her her name. It's a, it's based on a, a book that this woman wrote. Um, I think she's from Seattle. Um, but it's she's basically, um, the main character is a woman that works at a newspaper. And I don't, I don't, she's plus size. I don't know exactly what size she is. Um, 
but it just shows her dating, you know, experiencing a lot of fat phobia. She has this really awful editor who um, makes comments about her weight, but, um, you know, it just shows the everyday dating life of someone in their late twenties, early thirties as a plus, as plus size. So I, I think that, yeah, definitely. I don't think we would have seen that show 10 years ago. Oh no, definitely yeah. not. You would not yeah. have seen like half of the women that have been on magazines in the last like five yeah. years, like 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and, and and it's finally getting to the point where people stop announcing it's a plus size model. Right. Um, like where it used to be like, oh, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated just had their first plus size model. And it's like now people are kind of like stopping the uh, I, we need to announce that there's a plus size model on the cover and more ads aren't, you know, like, um what is it called when you try to change things on the, the normalization? Body. No, no, no. Like they're spray painting bodies on, on the picture. Oh, oh, the, oh gosh. The editing. Air- <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the editing. They're no, you know, you're seeing less and less ads where they're like editing out stretch marks and you're seeing more like people of all different body shapes and sizes with like, you know, I've seen ads where, you know, you have people with disabilities now represented and you're seeing people, um, with that, that skin disorder where like you have like the different color patches on you. Yes. Alopecia maybe. Is that alopecia? No, no, it's no. I think alopecia is with the hair, isn't it? Yeah. Like where you lose your hair. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember what it is, but there's actually a model that, that has it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, I've seen more people with like that sort of thing in ads with scars, with like, you know, stretch marks with all sorts of kind of things you're seeing like representatives now and ads and everything. people are pushing for it. People want to see themselves in the ads now. And yeah. I think it's, it's wonderful. It's such a wonderful change. I wish I had not been indoctrinated into the, you need to be skinny. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. And I think um, my, my sister was adopted from Korea. And so she's married to someone that's Korean. So I feel like, like when she was growing up, there was, there was like the Margaret show Cho show that was on for like a minute in the mid nineties. But yeah, I think there's just so much more, it's, it were, it's so much more inclusive now. So, um, for sure. So what has healing been like with, for you, what has your journey been like after college? Like, how did you get to where you are today hosting, you know, these monthly zooms and everything? Um, you know, it's really, it's really been a, um, a process for me. Like, um, I told my, my therapist who's now since retired, I, I, um, told her one time that I was a cockroach because I've survived so many things. And so like, I think, uh, you know, my, my 12 step recovery programs have definitely played like a huge part in that. Um, and therapy, Mm. um, when, when I was in my mid twenties, after I had been sober, maybe a year and a half or two, um, there was a woman that started a networking group in, in New York. And she was looking for people to start chapters in, um, other cities. And so it wasn't like, um, 
kind of one of those like dorky, like you hand your business card off to, it was more of a mentoring. Yeah, they're the the worst, but this was like the focus was on more of mentoring and helping each other. And so, uh, you know, I went to a women's college. I loved it. And so I started this um, women's networking organization in Portland or a chapter of it. It was called Dinner Girls. And I ran that for a couple of years and just getting the, um, you know, really realizing that I had this kind of entrepreneurial sensibility. I realized that I like liked connecting other women, but I also wanted to be an entrepreneur myself, you know, meeting all these people. And so, um, I kind of lapsed into this, um, business that I, that I work now where I help people with disabilities find jobs. Um, but I'm able to contract with the state of Oregon and kind of do that work. And, um, it's been really great because there's a lot of flexibility with, you know, I can travel and, um, do all these things. So I think that, um, my getting better is really, really linked also with my, my professional growth as well. Um, so I think therapy has also just played just a huge, a huge role in, um, getting where I, where I am today. And so this, um, reading series, this online reading series that I started with, um, Addie in May of last year has really been super great in terms of highlighting and centering the voices of survivors and just networking and hearing their stories and just listening to different types of writing. I mean, we have people who just don't write very often to people who have published books. So, really just getting to hear different voices. And then at the very end of each reading, we do like a Q and a, so people can kind of, we open it up so people can ask questions of the readers and, you know, really hear about what the writing experience is like as, as a survivor of trauma. Um, I think there's lots of aspects of, of, um, writing that are therapeutic. Um, and I've definitely experienced that myself. And, um, so, just hearing about people's experiences writing as a survivor has been super great for myself. And I think Addie as well. Yeah, I can say therapy is amazing too. I wish uh, somebody had gotten me into it earlier, which now looking back as a, as a child who may have been sexually abused, I mean, at the time I could not remember it and my parents divorcing and my mom's, when I got my bipolar diagnosis was like, we, we always knew something was off with you. And I'm like, how did nobody get me help? <laughs> That's all I can think of. Yeah. Like, how did you not get me help? And so I didn't start uh, therapy until 2013. So it's been almost 10 years. Yeah. And it has been a journey where like at first when I started, they thought I was just there for my abusive relationship prior to meeting my spouse. And we got done and she's like, oh, you're good but I wasn't good. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And then I ended up back in therapy because I was like having a meltdown. And then like, you know, that therapist, when I was starting to spiral is like, I really think you should see somebody just to get somebody to take the edge off. It doesn't need to be permanent. She's like, something's going on and we can't work through it because you are just spiraling. And then I go and I get a bipolar diagnosis and I'm yeah. like, oh, so. that's it. Um, and so now um, things were going great. And I, I had moved and I was seeing a therapist uh, for EMDR. 
yeah. um, which is great. But then COVID happened and yeah. now she only does virtual. And now like, I see her like once a month because I'm like, there's nothing we need to like do the EMDR and get this shit fixed. <laughs> like, Oh, um, I didn't even think about COVID effects of EMDR on. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's like, oh, we can do it. And I just can't do it because it's like you tapping on yourself. It doesn't work for me. And and I was like, I'm so close to just being like, you know, I want to find a new therapist because I really want the EMDR. I'm like, I will wear, I I wear a mask. I have KN95s. I'll wear it to your office. Like (laughs) I'm vaccinated. Let me do the things, please. Because it was very helpful to me. Um, My sexual abuse, I was able to like, as well as sexual assaults, I I uh, went through when I was older, um, I was able to process through those. And now I can talk about it. If I had talked about it a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. it would have triggered the the crap out of me. I would have been mass, but now I can talk about it without like having like that, that fear and the the anxiety and like all the feelings come bubbling up because the EMDR, it was so helpful, but yeah, COVID. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of going back to like therapy. It's funny. I had a, um, I had a therapist that I work with the one that I, that I told the cockroach story to, um, she retired right before COVID. And then, um, I discovered that the therapist that I worked with as a child during the court stuff, she was still, um, practicing. So, Yeah. So at the beginning of COVID, we started working together again. So it's been like a whole full circle um, thing. I just, I was talking to her this morning. I actually haven't seen her in person because of COVID obviously. Yeah. Um, but you know, we do the virtual session. That's what we do too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's great. And she knows my story and um, I, I really like working with her. So yeah, I love mine. And I'm just like, I was like, oh, are you going back in person anytime? And I've, I've mentioned to her multiple times that like the EMDR just doesn't work. We've tried it a couple of times. She's like, it doesn't for everybody being able to do it. You actually need like the lights and the vibrating thing. Yes. And I was like, okay. And then there's been no progress. And I'm just like, we're only seeing each other once a month because I have nothing to talk about. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> the things oh. I have to talk about are very triggering to me and I have like a really hard time and I really want the EMDR, which is what I saw her for. So I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but anyways, I love therapy. Therapy's great. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> been doing it for a long time now. Um, also like my meds. Those are great too. Yeah. <laughs> very helpful. Very, uh, very helpful. I would recommend anybody. I mean, even if they haven't been through something there, everybody has something to, to work through, right? Like you don't have yeah. to have gone through trauma to yeah. like, work, like talk about something. Definitely. Definitely. I think therapy is so much more accessible now too, because there's all mm-hmm. these different, you know, telehealth platforms to, to start that work. And it's not, you know, you can do it from home. We don't have to go anywhere. So yeah. Yeah. That's great for my son. Cause he has ADHD and we literally meet with his psychiatrist for like five minutes, just for him to say, how are things going? Everything's going great. Oh, is this, this, and this happening? Nope. Okay. Well, I'm going to refill your meds. And I, you know, like it would have been, 
I mean, the same for my psychiatrist. I do the same thing with him. It's like, Hey, how are your medications going? Is this happening? Blah, blah, blah. Do we need to increase it? Oh no, we're good. And then we're done. Like five minutes later. Five minutes, well, I, yeah. I, yeah. I would have had to drive there waiting a waiting room. Um, and then talk to him for five minutes and then drive home. And oh. now I could just go over the internet. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. That is fantastic. It is. I mean, so, I mean, that's one thing I can thank COVID for that. Like, you know, insurances are now like my insurance didn't cover telehealth before. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. But now it does. And now like a lot of offices, like even if they have opened back up are willing to, if they don't need to see you in person. Yeah, definitely. It's so convenient because I don't have to waste gas and time going. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Sitting in traffic, sitting in traffic for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what, if anybody's listening and they've been through this similar situation with the childhood sexual abuse, what, what would you want? Would, what would you want to tell them? What would you advise them as somebody who's been through it too? You know, I, if, you know, to someone who has been through something like this and they don't have any, you know, resources or connections, I think just a call to like your local women's crisis line or like the rain network has like an an 800 number where they can put you in contact with someone like local and just, they can help you access those services. But, um, even just talking to like, I mean, if you have someone that's a trusted friend or family member, um, but I think those are like the best. Um, I, you know, I can only really speak to my own experience with therapy, but it's, um, you know, one of the things um, that I've really started to talk about more is that pri- uh, uh, therapy really is a privilege, is, it is. is a luxury as a, as a white middle-class lady that I have, and maybe someone else doesn't have. So, um, I think that, you know, however you get help is, is going to be beneficial if it's therapy, working with a coach, getting in contact with the women's crisis line or, or the rain network, but those are be the, I think the best places to start for people who may be experiencing something like this. Now for the parents, God forbid this ever happens to them. And I hope nobody listening ever has to deal with this in their lives. Yeah. As somebody who's been through it as a child, what would you want parents to know? What would you want them? What would be your advice for them? You know, nowadays, I I know at least here locally in Portland, there's, there's a, there's a, it's called a one-stop it's called cares. And I, it's an acronym for something. I don't know what it is, but there's social work. There's like basically like wraparound services. So everything is in house therapy, reporting, case management. Um, I did not have that luxury at the time. It was all individualized, but getting in touch with, um, it's like a triage basically for, if you just Google like child sexual abuse, triage or one-stop centers, those are like the best place to start. Um, just even calling and just, you know, running down symptoms. If you suspect it's happening, just mm-hmm. with someone over the phone can be a really beneficial thing to do. I think. Yeah. It's in, in noticing, right. That your yeah. chi- child's behavior. Yeah. Like, does it, does it seem very unusual? Did it change? Because like, 
I mean, for me, it had been going on apparently since I was very little. So I guess you wouldn't really notice a change for me, but I was like you unusually quiet, depressed. I've had depression. I've, I've, I've experienced depression since I was in single digits. Yeah. Like, so I was depressed. I had like all these things going on that were just like different, like they were abnormal for a child. Right. But like, that that happened to me at a very young age, but somebody might see a change in their child, see how their oh, child yeah. is, is acting. Maybe now their child has a lot of stomach aches. Um, maybe their child doesn't want to be around a certain individual. Like mm-hmm. they keep making excuses why they don't want to go to this person's house, you know, yeah. where they used to go all the time or, you know, there's just these little things and, and Google's a great resource. Like if you're suspecting some things up, like what are different signs and symptoms? Those are just a few that like, yeah. I, if I've experienced or personally seen myself in my life with, um, people that have been like children that have been through it is like, there is a, like, they do, they start to act differently. And, and, you know, now they're like, stomach aches they're like I don't want to go to this person's house they're acting differently around a certain individual where like maybe before they were really loving and now they just don't want to be near them like yeah you know it could be nothing but it could could be nothing um withdrawn if a child is very withdrawn quiet um I was seven and I was telling my mom that I wanted to die by the time I was nine you know just like yeah weird behaviors like weird behaviors in children, it could be nothing, but oftentimes those are really the things to pay attention to. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? So, um, you know, the one thing that I would, that I would leave, um, the listeners with is, um, I think there's, we all have something in us that is like an inner voice or the inner quiet. Um, for me, it's been like that, that inner cockroach just to like keep going, um, and persevering through, through whatever life has thrown at me. So yeah, that was, that's what I would leave the listeners with. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's literally what plays in my head when I'm just like ready to be like done with everything. And Dory just pops in my head, like just keep swimming. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.